This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Cyanotic Congenital Cardiac Defects Diagnosis and Therapy by Dr. Tom Kulik. I'm Dr. Tom Kulik. I'm a pediatric cardiologist and cardiac intensivist at the Children's Hospital Boston. Uh, this lecture will be the second part of two lectures uh, in regards to the diagnosis and management of the infant with cyanosis. Introduction To briefly preview the lecture, we will first review the physiology of cyanosis that was covered in the first of these uh, two lectures. We will uh, discuss general diagnostic considerations. We will briefly go over some of the most important uh, types of cyanotic heart disease, especially the types that are uh, present in, uh, in the neonate, and we will discuss ICU-based therapy. And by that, we're not going to talk about surgical palliation or surgical correction of these lesions, but rather focus on the sort of things that the neonatologist and intensivist will be involved with in their unit. Uh, stabilizing and preparing uh, the baby for more definitive uh, treatment. Physiology. So let's briefly talk about the physiology of cyanosis caused by congenital heart defects and review material that we had previously discussed. There are basically four types of physiological reasons why babies are cyanotic. They can have right to left intraventricular shunt as illustrated here by a baby with tetralogy of Fallot. In this case, there's a ventricular septal defect and outflow obstruction between the right ventricle and pulmonary artery. Hence, blood uh, tends to go right to left across the VSD into the aorta, right to left intraatrial shunting. In this case, it's a baby that has severe pulmonary stenosis. The obstruction to blood flow from the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery is so severe that an entire cardiac output cannot be ejected into the lungs, and hence there's a considerable amount of right-to-left shunting at the atrial level, not ventricular level. Let's talk about what I might term simple or perhaps more commonly termed complete mixing, and what you see here is an example of a baby that has a particular type of single ventricle lesion called tricuspid atresia. In this case, there uh, is what I might term simple or complete mixing of blue systemic venous blood with red pulmonary venous blood, and as a result, there is a cyanosis. And finally, transposition physiology is the uh, uh, physiology that occurs in babies that have uh, detransposition of the great vessels. That is to say, the aorta is attached to the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery to the left ventricle, in which case there tend to be two separate circuits whereby the blue blood coming back from the body to the heart is ejected right back out to the body again, and red blood from the lungs is re-ejected to the uh, lungs. These patients can only survive ex utero by virtue of some degree of mixing of the red and blue streams, and we will discuss this a little bit more in just a few minutes. There are multiple determinants 
of uh, arterial oxygen saturation and congenital heart disease. And they can pretty much be boiled down to these five factors. The first is pulmonary venous sat oxygen saturation. Obviously, a baby with congenital heart lesion will be bluer than he or she would otherwise be if there's lung disease, and hence the pulmonary venous blood is not fully saturated. The ratio of pulmonary to systemic blood flow, also known as QPDQS, is very important in babies with um, either uh, complete uh, mixing lesions or even uh, simple right to left shunting. The amount of systemic blood flow, the hemoglobin content of the blood, and the uh, total body O2 consumption are also important in determining arterial oxygen saturation. And the reason for this is, is that whenever there's right to left shunting, the blue blood returning from the body tends to essentially dilute out the oxygen level of the red blood returning from the lungs. The bluer the blue blood is, um, uh, the less red the arterial blood will be as it's ejected from the heart. So as systemic blood flow falls, mixed venous oxygen saturations also tend to fall. With less O2 delivery to the body because of lowered hemoglobin, the mixed venous O2 saturation tends to uh, fall and as more uh, oxygen is extracted because of high uh, oxygen consumption, that also tends to negatively impact the oxygen saturation of the venous blood. So these are the uh, key determinants of arterial O2 saturation in just about any congenital heart lesion. Perhaps the only exception to that is detransposition of the great arteries. And there the key issue is how much mixing of the red blood and the blue blood streams occurs. And again, we'll talk about this a bit more uh, in a few minutes. Diagnostic considerations. Let's move on to general diagnostic uh, considerations. We're going to focus primarily on the clinical characteristics which help discriminate congenital heart disease uh, from lung disease and persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. We're not going to try to provide enough information to allow one to make a specific diagnosis of a heart defect without uh, performing an echocardiogram because echo is really the definitive way we make these diagnoses in the vast majority of cases. So I, I'm going to emphasize uh, for the next few minutes the things that one can observe in a baby in terms of uh, physical signs and symptoms that make one most concerned about the possibility of a congenital defect and hence um, initiating prompt um, detailed evaluation of such. So let's talk about these red flags for congenital heart disease. The first is babies that are cyanosis with um, what uh, one of the kind of founding fathers of pediatric cardiology, Alex Natus, termed happy tachypnea. Happy tachypnea is tachypnea without dyspnea, or a baby who's breathing fast but very easily. Babies with lung disease, of course, tend to have dyspnea because their lungs are relatively non-compliant. On the other hand, babies with um, congenital heart disease tend to have very compliant lungs 
And hence, although they will be tachypneic because of a hypoxic respiratory drive, they don't tend to breathe particularly hard. And so happy tachypnea tends to make one think more of heart disease and less of lung disease. Now one has to be careful though. There is a particular um, type of heart lesion, uh, total anomalous pulmonary venous connection. That is to say when all the uh, pulmonary veins returning from the lungs uh, are have obstruction uh, somewhere between uh, uh, their origin and the heart. These babies can uh, develop very severe pulmonary edema as is illustrated on this chest x-ray of a young patient with uh, total obstructed veins. And these babies will have a considerable amount of dyspnea. So one always has to keep obstructed total veins in mind when presented with the cyanotic baby that has um, uh, lung findings suggestive of pulmonary edema. The second red flag for congenital heart disease is differential cyanosis. Differential cyanosis is when the oxygen saturations are different in the right arm versus the lower body. And there are basically um, uh, two types of differential cyanosis. The first is differential cyanosis due to um, right to left uh, shunting of um, systemic venous blood into the descending aorta. And this can occur under two circumstances. One is persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. Babies that have this particular um, uh, disease have very high pulmonary resistance. And if they have an open ductus, especially a large open ductus, they may actually shunt blood from the pulmonary artery into the descending aorta, such that their satur oxygen saturations in their right arm will be considerably higher than in their uh, legs. Um, uh, not all babies with uh, PPHN have differential cyanosis, but certainly many of them do. That same, those same findings, however, can occur in babies with congenital heart lesions. For example, I've shown a baby with interruption of the aortic arch. Uh, uh, in this particular set of circumstances, all of the perfusion to the lower body is visa, via the right ventricle across the ductus, and so these kids will tend to have substantially lower oxygen saturation in the lower extremities than in the right arm. So differential cyanosis, while it can uh, occur without a congenital heart lesion, specifically with PPHN, can also occur with certain forms of heart disease. The second uh, flavor, if you will, of differential cyanosis is reverse differential cyanosis. And with reverse differential cyanosis, the oxygen saturations are actually higher in the lower body than in the right arm. And where this is occasionally seen, and I think pretty much the only time it's occasionally seen, is in babies with detransposition of the great vessels or a very similar anatomic lesion. In this case, if there is very high resistance to blood flow in the lungs and there's a patent ductus arteriosus, when the left ventricle ejects uh, blood into the pulmonary artery, a certain fraction of it will tend to go across the ductus into the descending aorta. Since this is red pulmonary venous blood, these patients will actually tend to have higher oxygen saturation in the legs than in the right arm. This can occur either because, as I just mentioned, high pulmonary vascular resistance 
or sometimes coarctation of the aorta in a detransposition, where there is narrowing of the isthmus of the aorta, the segment uh, between the uh, left subclavian artery and the, and the uh, ductus. And that can also give um, uh, differential, reverse differential cyanosis. So the finding of reverse differential cyanosis is very highly suggestive of uh, congenital heart disease. Murmurs are a third, um, can constitute a third red flag for congenital heart disease. As I think most folks know, very soft murmurs are very um, common in babies. And grade one to two over six murmurs do not necessarily connote congenital heart disease. On the other hand, murmurs of grade three intensity are louder, are quite unusual and uh, otherwise uh, normal babies and certainly raise a red flag in a baby who has um, uh, lower than normal uh, arterial oxygen saturations. Continuous murmurs in the back are also very uncommon in otherwise normal newborns and make one think of a lesion-like tetralogy of flow with pulmonary atresia. And there is one murmur in particular, that is to say the uh, to and fro, not so much continuous, but to and fro murmur at the left upper sternal border which is almost pathognomic of uh, babies that have absent pulmonary valve syndrome, also known as tetralogy of flow absent pulmonary valve. There are very few other situations in which a typical to and fro murmur like this is heard. So murmurs can sometimes put one on the alert for congenital heart lesion. Uh, the uh, point number four refers to the so-called hyperoxia test. That is to say, if one gives a baby with lung disease a very high inspired oxygen, generally the PO2 will go up substantially, or though 2SAT goes up substantially, by virtue of the fact that most uh, babies that are cyanotic by virtue of lung disease have um, uh, VQ mismatch as a primary cause for this, and this is quite responsive to oxygen. Uh, one can read various cutoff levels for um, uh, arterial PO2 in response to 100% oxygen as discriminating uh, between uh, um, congenital heart disease and lung lesions. I've used PO2 of 200 because it's certainly possible for babies with cyanotic um, uh, mixing lesions to have PO2s of greater than 150 on 100% oxygen. But to be quite honest, this test doesn't have a clear-cut um, cutoff. Babies um, with very severe lung disease may not increase their arterial PO2s that much on 100% oxygen. Uh, on the other hand, babies with certain forms of heart disease, for example, total anomalous pulmonary venous connection uh, below the diaphragm will occasionally have streaming of pulmonary venous blood in such a way that the arterial PO2 can actually be greater than 200 uh, in the um, uh, upper body. And so it's very hard to, um, to give it a, a discrete, reliable cutoff uh, for the um, uh, uh, hyperoxia test. I think it would be safe to say that any PO2s uh, less than uh, 200 or even somewhat greater than that uh, would make one have to consider uh, the possibility of congenital heart defects. And in fact, probably a more sophisticated way to think about this, although a non-quantitative way, is to consider that whenever the arterial PO2 is out of proportion 
to the chest x-ray, one is con uh, concerned about congenital heart defects, in particular relatively low PO2s despite a, um, a normal chest x-ray. Again, one has to be cautious. Babies with obstructed total of anomalous pulmonary venous connection can have very wet appearing chest x-ray, which might imply pneumonia, but in fact is pulmonary edema due to their congenital heart lesion. Electrocardiogram is generally normal in most babies with cyanotic heart disease and isn't uh, terribly useful in most cases, therefore, although the presence of left axis deviation, that is to say a QRS axis of less than a zero, uh, does run along with certain forms of heart disease, uh, cyanotic heart disease, especially uh, tricuspid atresia, and certainly raises a red flag in uh, the circumstances in which left axis deviation occurs. Finally, the chest x-ray can be helpful. Uh, certainly dextrocardia doesn't um, prove the uh, presence of congenital heart disease, although makes it quite likely. A midline stomach bubble, as one sees with heterotaxy syndromes, also uh, markedly increases the likelihood of congenital heart disease. Right aortic arch can be uh, a finding in a normal person, but um, it also uh, suggests the possibility of tetralogy of flow, truncus arteriosus, or transposition VSD pulmonary stenosis. And a classic finding with babies that have uh, tetralogy of flow, or tetralogy of flow with pulmonary atresia, is the upturned cardiac apex combined with the flat pulmonary arterial segment on the chest x-ray and right aortic arch, as we see in this film of a baby uh, with tetralogy flow and pulmonary atresia. Types of cyanotic congenital heart disease. So having discussed the sorts of uh, physical findings that uh, make one concern about heart disease, let's talk about the specific types of heart disease that are uh, cyanotic heart disease that occur most often in babies with this lesion. We're not going to go over detailed descriptions, but I hope to provide enough information that you'll have a general idea of what you will be dealing with about 99% of the time when dealing with cyanotic uh, infants. And I'd like to break these lesions down into what you might call a ductocentric classification. That is to say, categorize the babies, the patients in this way those that have severe obstruction to pulmonary blood flow and therefore require an open ductus and therefore prostaglandin E1 for a palliation. Number two, babies that have little or no obstruction to pulmonary blood flow, in which case PGE1 may not be either required or even um, helpful. Uh, the third type uh, classification are babies with detransposition of the great vessels. Those babies may benefit from an open ductus, but not always. And finally, babies with a total anomalous pulmonary venous connection with obstruction. In those cases, uh, babies neither benefit from, in fact, uh, may uh, actually um, uh, have a deleterious effect from prostaglandin E1. So let's start with the first classification, babies with obstruction, severe obstruction to pulmonary blood flow, in which case uh, prostaglandin E1 is required therapy. Uh, the first would be babies with critical pulmonary stenosis or pulmonary atresia. As I mentioned earlier in this lecture, babies with this particular lesion have such a high degree of outflow 
uh, obstruction between the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery that a full cardiac output cannot be ejected across this narrowed pulmonary valve into the lungs, and hence there's a very large amount of right-to-left shunting at the atrial level. There's a diagram of that on the left. On the right is a lateral view of a, an angiogram, which is an injection into the right ventricle. And what you see here is a good-sized right ventricle but with relatively heavy trabeculations due to hypertrophy that's occurred in utero because of the very high right ventricular pressure. And you see a very thickened pulmonary valve. Ordinarily, you can't really see the pulmonary valve very well on angiography and um, uh, with a relatively small jet of contrast that goes across it. This is a kind of a typical angio of a baby with the critical valvar pulmonary stenosis. Because of the marked limitation in pulmonary blood flow in critical PS, um, patency of the ductus is critical. Tetralogy of Fallot, if severe enough, can present with life-threatening hypoxemia in a neonate uh, because of a marked reduction in pulmonary flow. I want to make the strong point, however, that most babies with tetralogy after they're born do not have severe obstruction uh, to um, uh, right ventricular outflow. Most neonatal tetralogies have quite adequate oxygen saturations without an open ductus and really require very little in the way of therapy. But in the case of a baby with severe obstruction, prostaglandin E1 may be required. There are other lesions that are similar to tetralogy flow, for example, double outlet right ventricle with pulmonary stenosis that have much the same physiology. Babies with single ventricle lesions that have a high degree of obstruction to pulmonary blood flow also require prostaglandin E1. This is a diagram of a patient with tricuspid atresia. In the case of uh, triatresia, there is basically no right ventricle, no tricuspid valve, and so systemic venous blood goes from the two cava into the right atrium, crosses the atrial septum into the left atrium, and mixes with pulmonary venous blood there, uh, enters the left ventricle, some is ejected into the aorta, and then some find its way, finds its way into the lungs, presuming there is an open VSD in a subpulmonary uh, chamber. If the VSD is quite restrictive or the area underneath the pulmonary artery is quite narrow, there may be a critical reduction in uh, pulmonary blood flow, in which case uh, prostaglandin E1 will be required. Now, not all tricuspid atresia babies have this critical reduction. Some do not require um, uh, prostaglandins, but uh, some do, and this is true for other single ventricle defects that have restricted pulmonary blood flow. Finally, this is a rare lesion. Even large centers uh, will see this only a very few times of the year, but it's worth mentioning. Epstein's malformation basically is uh, when the uh, tricuspid valve is displaced into the right ventricle such that the right ventricular mass is reduced in functional volume and the valve itself is very non-functional, so it um, tends to have marked regurgitation. There's a whole spectrum of Epstein's. Very mild Epstein's is consistent with an asymptomatic long life. Uh, very severe Epstein's uh, shows up in the way I've illustrated on this screen with a baby that has a massively dilated heart in utero and uh, immediately ex-utero and a right ventricle that by virtue of the tricuspid regurgitation 
is basically insufficient to eject blood out the pulmonary artery and into the lungs. These babies require an open ductus uh, in order to, to provide adequate uh, pulmonary blood flow. The second general uh, category of patients with cyanotic heart disease are those that have little or no obstruction of pulmonary blood flow and therefore do not require postulant and E1 for palliation. As I mentioned before, uh, babies with tetralogy of flow rarely need a ductus. Most do not have severe right ventricular outflow obstruction, and so this uh, would generally be the case for most babies with tetralogy. Babies with tetralogy of flow and so-called MAPCAs, or multiple aortal pulmonary um, uh, uh, arteries are patients that also oftentimes do not require prostaglandin for palliation. Babies with this particular lesion are like tetralogy in the sense that there are two normal sized ventricles and a ventricular septal defect. The aorta generally comes off mostly of the left ventricle, but instead of having some connection between the right ventricle and the pulmonary arteries, there is no connection and blood finds its way into the lungs either through the so-called aerotopulmonary collateral vessels or in some cases through an adductus arteriosus. Babies that do not have adductus arteriosus and have supply through the aerotopulmonary collateral vessels of course are not ductal dependent. And I've uh, illustrated the angiogram on the right side of the slide as arrows pointing to these collaterals that come directly off the aorta. These babies are not prostaglandin dependent. I do hasten, however, to make note of the fact that some subset of babies with tetralogy of flow and pulmonary atresia will basically have their entire pulmonary blood flow supplied via a ductus. And babies with that lesion do require an open ductus and hence generally prostaglandin E1 palliation. Babies with truncus arteriosus do not require prostaglandin E1 unless there's some additional lesion, uh, such as interruption of the aortic arch. Babies with truncus basically have two normal-sized ventricles and a BSD, and then there's a single large vessel that arises from these two ventricles that gives rise to both the aorta and pulmonary arteries, and this is not a ductal-dependent form of cyanotic heart disease. Babies with uh, single ventricle lesions that have no obstruction to pulmonary blood flow do not require prostaglandin E1 in order to maintain adequate pulmonary blood flow. Now I hasten to make note of the fact that some of these babies can have obstruction to their aorta, either flow from the ventricle into the aorta or coarctation or other narrowing of the aorta in that case, prostaglandin E1 may be required, but simply talking about babies with cyanosis, um, uh, cyanotic uh, defects, um, if there's no obstruction of pulmonary blood flow in a single ventricle patient, uh, there's no need for um, uh, prostaglandin E1 in order to maintain adequate pulmonary blood flow. In the case of uh, babies with transposition of the great um, uh, arteries, prostaglandin E1 may be helpful. As you recall, these babies require mixing of the red and blue um, uh, bloodstreams in order to provide adequate O2 delivery to the body. This generally has to at least in part occur at the level of the atrial septum, 
uh, mixing at the level of the ductus as a sole level of mixing is not uh, adequate, but a presence of an open ductus can increase pulmonary blood flow and augment mixing at the atrial level. And so for that reason, prostaglandin E1 may be helpful in babies with transposition. Not all babies will adequately respond to this, however, and, um, uh, and there's an occasional baby with detransposition that actually becomes acutely uh, ill after introduction of this medication for whatever reason. And so one has to keep this in mind, but by and large, um, uh, ductal patency, main, maintaining ductal patency is helpful in these patients um, with transposition. Babies with total anomalous pulmonary venous connection, on the other hand, may actually be harmed by prostaglandin E1. If these uh, babies have obstruction to pulmonary venous return to the heart, the resistance to blood flow through the lungs is very high, in which case if the ductus arteriosus is open, blood that's ejected from the right ventricle tends to go across the ductus into the descending aorta, and hence total pulmonary blood flow is reduced. So with total anomalous pulmonary venous connection, um, one generally avoids the use of prostaglandin E1. ICU therapy. So finally, what uh, is this ICU-based therapy uh, that's available for patients that are hypoxemic? Well, basically there are three things that one needs to do in order to effectively apply this therapy. The first thing is to assess and secure adequate O2 delivery for the patient. Uh, even before one has a definitive diagnosis, it's necessary to attend to this. Uh, it's important when assessing the baby for life-threatening hypoxemia, uh, by the way, to measure arterial oxygen um, saturations or PO2s. Transcutaneous oximeters are really not very accurate when the oxygen saturation is low and really aren't um, uh, acceptable in many cases for determining whether a baby is um, uh, seriously hypoxemic or merely has a lower than normal oxygen level. It's necessary to make ultimately an accurate diagnosis and then eventually definitive therapy is applied, which is oftentimes surgical. But there is a considerable amount of opportunity to make these patients better even without surgery. So what is life-threatening hypoxemia? At least as far as I'm aware, there's no absolute arterial PO2 that qualifies for this. And so it's very important to think not only in terms of arterial saturation, but O2 delivery to the tissues. O2 delivery is uh, the equation that describes oxygen delivery to the tissues is very simple. It's basically delivery equals um, content of uh, arterial content of oxygen, which is related to both the pulmonary venous oxygen saturation as well as hemoglobin and uh, systemic blood flow, which is in a normal uh, person, in a normal heart, uh, cardiac output. One uh, uses serum lactates, and to some extent, uh, serum bicarb levels as indicators of tissue dysoxia. I don't think we know for sure that uh, a um, uh, non-elevated lactate level necessarily implies that all organs, especially the brain, have adequate uh, O2 delivery, but as a general index of total uh, O2 uh, delivery sufficiency, a lack of lact uh, high lactates 
tends to be uh, somewhat reassuring. In general, I think one could say that with acceptable hemoglobin and cardiac output, at least in newborn babies, uh, arterial PO2s in the low uh, 20 range are tolerated at least for some period of time, and certainly arterial PO2s of greater than 25 seem to be uh, well uh, tolerated for at least some period of hours or perhaps even longer. But again, I emphasize that it's critical that the hematocrit be appropriate as well as cardiac output. If these determinants of O2 delivery are reduced, then that means that even with a uh, marginally acceptable arterial PO2, O2 delivery may not be sufficient. So what can you do for a baby that has uh, inadequate um, arterial uh, delivery and saturations? Well, pretty much regardless of the form of disease, and this applies uh, to lung disease as well as heart disease, there are a number of things one can do to improve O2 delivery. One can optimize hematocrit. I don't think anybody knows precisely what the very most optimal hematocrit is for O2 delivery, but it seems in general that uh, hematocrit somewhere in the 45 range are probably pretty close. One can do one's best to obtain adequate systemic perfusion, appropriate volume infusion as needed. Uh, inotropic agents can be very helpful. Um, time does not permit a full discussion of these, but the, the general use of these agents to improve cardiac output uh, will be, can be helpful in cyanotic patients. One would optimize ventilation, which oftentimes will require means mechanical ventilation, but not always. One can minimize uh, total body O2 consumption through the use of chemical paralysis, mechanical ventilation, sedation, and temperature control. And finally, one can uh, uh, use therapy to um, reduce or eliminate acidosis, make sure uh, glucose and calcium levels are uh, acceptable. Prostaglandin E1 is um, uh, definitive palliation, although not permanent therapy for many lesions. It's certainly necessary when there's high-grade anatomic obstruction of pulmonary blood flow. As I noted, it's often but not always helpful in detransposition. And as also noted, it can actually be harmful with obstructive total anomalous pulmonary venous connection. Or in any case in which systemic hypotension may be non-helpful. Uh, it's important to note that uh, prostaglandin E1 is a systemic vasodilator, and when this medication is started, it's oftentimes necessary to use some degree of volume infusion or even inotropic and alpha-adrenergic agents in order to secure adequate blood pressure. Uh, one also needs to keep in mind that e, uh, prostaglandin E1 also can cause apnea. This is especially true in prematures. Uh, it also is, seems to have an additive effect along with sedation, so that babies that are sedated for procedures or tests are more prone to apnea with prostaglandin E1, and one needs to keep this in mind. Babies that are uh, transported shortly after uh, E1 has been initiated, or even for that matter, a number of hours after it, because sometimes the apnea that occurs with this medication occurs many hours later, one needs to consider uh, whether or not those patients should be intubated. It, uh, whether or not intubation is indicated in this situation depends upon the exact circumstances, but one always needs to uh, consider this before transporting the patient. 
The dose that's used to open a, a, a closed ductus with the E1 is 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Uh, for babies that already have open ductuses and one wants to maintain patency, we use a much lower dose. We generally use between 0.01 and 0.02 micrograms per kilogram per minute in order to maintain patency. Uh, as I noted before, it's important if one wants to avoid apnea to try to be ginger in one's use of uh, sedatives in patients uh, on the prostaglandins. Uh, there is also at least uh, one uh, paper in the literature that would suggest that pretreatment with aminophilin, and one presumes that caffeine may have the same effect, um, reduces the risk of apnea in babies with prostaglandin E1 uh, substantially. Definitive palliation for babies uh, mostly with the transposition of the great vessels. There are a few other unusual circumstances, but primarily detransposition of the great vessels is re uh, really affected by Rashkin balloon septostomy. It's performed by skilled personnel, generally uh, well-trained pediatric cardiologists. It can be done at the bedside using echocardiographic guidance or in the cath lab. There is a relatively low risk of complications with this procedure, but the ones that do occur can be very serious. There is a risk of um, of air embolism because of the technical features of the way this is generally done. Also some risk of injury to systemic or pulmonary veins or uh, AV valves. And so it's important that the hands performing this procedure be skilled and experienced. Maybe baby, many babies that have this particular procedure, by the way, still require an open ductus for adequate oxygen uh, saturations. Simply having an open atrial septum does not always ensure adequate mixing. This is an um, angiogram of a baby with detransposition that has a Rashkin balloon septostomy catheter placed in the left atrium. Uh, the catheter came up the inferior vena cava across the foramen ovale and uh, the um, balloon uh, was inflated, which uh, by the way can, uh, uh, has a contrast, radiopaque contrast material, and it was inflated. You see the uh, balloon is briefly advanced and then forcibly pulled across the atrial septum into the right atrium as illustrated here. Finally, I'll just briefly mention that there are a few unusual situations that you might wind up encountering that will require a uh, slightly different therapy. There are a few, but not many patients with congenital heart lesions that have increased uh, pulmonary vascular resistance, much as is seen in persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. The only lesion in which this is seen with any frequency, and, and even in this case, it's, it's unusual, but not unheard of, is detransposition of the great vessels. These babies occasionally have very high resistance which to some extent is oftentimes responsive to inhaled nitric oxide or other vasodilators, and tends to resolve after a few days. Uh, these patients may require nitric oxide or even ECMO support in order to, to support them while their uh, vascular resistance is uh, falling postnatally. Babies with congenital heart disease that have persistent findings of significantly elevated pulmonary vascular resistance 
uh, are quite uncommon and make one think of the possibility of alveolar capillary dysplasia, which has been des uh, described in a number of congenital heart lesions, especially left side of obstructive lesions. Uh, I, some babies with right side of obstructive lesions, especially tetralogy of flow, will have a congenital absence of the ductus arteriosus. If a baby has no ductus and severe uh, outflow tract obstruction, prostaglandin E1 will not be of any use in palliation, of course. Uh, these patients uh, can be uh, treated, sometimes uh, palliated for some period of time by increasing their systemic vascular resistance so as to effectively force blood across the uh, high-grade obstruction in the right ventricle. Ventricular outflow tract, phenylephrine, is most typically used for this. Um, uh, ECMO support can be useful. Sometimes these babies can be treated in the cath lab by placement of a stent out the right ventricular outflow tract in order to open this up sufficiently for adequate PO2s. Um, pa patients with uh, obstruction of the um, of total anomalous uh, pulmonary venous, uh, uh, anomalously connected pulmonary veins require emergency surgery because there's really no effective form of palliation other than very short-term um, ECMO under unusual circumstances. So by and large, these patients require prompt diagnosis and prompt definitive surgical therapy. Finally, to finish up the lecture, I'd just like to spend a few minutes talking about uh, ICU therapy for patients with single ventricle physiology and unobstructed pulmonary blood flow. Patients with this combination of defects tend to develop over the first few postnatal days excessive pulmonary blood flow. And the reason is, of course, is that normally resistance to blood flow through the lungs is much lower than the body. And as pulmonary resistance falls, and it tends to fall quite rapidly after birth, these patients actually tend to send more and more blood to the lungs and less blood to the body. Since the heart can only pump out a total amount of blood a volume of blood at any one time. These patients tend to have only mild hypoxemia. Their saturations are in the 80s or even the 90s. And uh, there's a tendency for systemic uh, blood flow to be reduced uh, due to excessive blood flow into the lungs. Typical lesions that have this are truncus arteriosus, who generally, in most cases, do not have obstruction of the pulmonary arteries, hypoplastic left heart, or any single ventricle defect with unobstructed total pulmonary blood flow. Uh, this is a slide that I had shown in the, uh, the previous uh, part one a lecture that relates the total amount of pulmonary to systemic flow, the QPDQS, to oxygen delivery. Uh, as you may recall from the first lecture, as QP to QS goes up beyond a certain level, the blood that goes to the lungs effectively is blood that's uh, stolen from the body, uh, given uh, the fact the heart can only pump so much blood, and as a result, the total amount of O2 delivery, which is of course dependent upon not only arterial saturation, but also systemic blood flow, tends to go down. These are computer-generated curves that relate QP to QS to systemic O2 availability, which is the same as delivery. And what it shows, and I put a red circle on the graph to indicate the amount of total cardiac output that most neonates generally have. And as the QP to QS goes much more than a little bit less than one, 
the total O2 delivery to the body actually falls even as the arterial uh, saturation goes up. So it's important that these patients be managed in such a way that the natural tendency to have too much pulmonary blood flow is not encouraged. And the way we do that is we avoid therapy that decreases pulmonary resistance. We avoid hyperoxia and alkalosis, both of which tend to vasodilate the lungs, um, pulmonary vascular bed. We avoid systemic hypertension. As systemic vascular resistance goes up, this tends to force more blood into the low resistance pulmonary circuit. Patients like this may also benefit somewhat from inotropic support in order to maximize their cardiac output. Diuretics can be helpful since they tend to accumulate some fluid in their body and their lungs. An occasional patient may benefit from some ambient oxygen, FiO2 in the 15 to 16 range or so, if in fact they show signs of decreased systemic perfusion. We actually don't tend to use that very much in our institution, but under certain uh, closely monitored circumstances, it may be helpful. Summary. So to summarize, it's important uh, to identify cyanotic lesions that um, seem likely to have congenital heart disease so that a prompt diagnosis can be undertaken. Um, one can um, certainly uh, base uh, diagnosis as best as possible on, or base therapy as best as possible on specific diagnoses and uh, Prostaglandin E1, when used appropriately, uh, can be very helpful. Uh, even before one has a specific diagnosis, I should emphasize that for severely hypoxemic patients, uh, generally speaking, the likelihood is greater that you will help than harm the patient with prostaglandin E1. So especially if one is dealing with uh, life-threatening hypoxemia, waiting for a specific diagnosis to initiate prostaglandin E1 would generally not be the appropriate thing to do. Uh, if the baby, uh, uh, upon being started on prostaglandin E1, is, uh, hy uh, becomes um, hypotensive or more hypoxemic, one may need to modify that therapy. But one should be relatively liberal in one's use of uh, prostaglandin E1 uh, absent specific contraindications. And finally, and this is a very important, important point, some therapy, for example, uh, optimizing hematocrit, uh, minimizing O2 consumption, and promoting adequate systemic blood flow is helpful for just about anybody with severe hypoxemia and can be applied even when there isn't a specific diagnosis while one is waiting to do that. Thank you very much. Please help us improve the content by providing us with some feedback. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.